Hello everyone and welcome to RadChat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiog valed oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 111. My name is Naman Joker Anderson and I'm joined by fellow host Joe McNamara. Hi everyone. So a big thank you to our last guest, Lynn Buckley, who talked about the role of psychosexual counselling for people living with and beyond cancer. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So we're very pleased to introduce our guest today, John Organ, who will be discussing his life after a laryngectomy. Hi John, how are you? Hi, good evening. Yeah, I'm very well, actually. Good, it's nice to have you. Would you mind by starting and just telling us a bit about yourself and if you feel comfortable with your uh, treatment and experience of cancer? Yeah, um, so I'm a 57-year-old man. I'm married for 35 years with four children and 11 grandchildren. And um, up until uh, January this year, um, life was wonderful. Everything was going well. I had a lovely social life, a wonderful group of friends. And uh, the only concern in my life was that I had old voice. And I had old voice for about a year. And the reason why I had it for about a year was that I have asthma and a touch of emphysema. And um, I was on steroid inhalers for about a year which they assured me was the reason for my old voice. It wasn't. So, I uh, ended up speaking to my GP on the uh, 16th of November last year um, to get to the bottom of the old voice once and for all. And went on a two-week rule. In that two-week rule, and an ENT appointment, they spoke to me through the nose and had a look down my throat. And there and then, at that moment, they told me I had cancer. When I thought I had a throat infection, or thrush, or something. And that's led me to where we are today. John, that must have come as a shock if you'd kind of previously been reassured that, you know, it was as a consequence of your asthma. Um, you know, when they told you, what went through your head? Had you had people who'd been affected by cancer that you knew previously? Well, it was absolutely crazy because if I told you the journey, you wouldn't believe it. Um, two years previously, my mum had diagnosed with uh, double kidney cancer and she's in her 80s. And... Um, my brother at that time had not long passed from lung cancer at the age of 60. And they come on to him very sudden. Before we had COVID playing a game of golf. And um, in under a year he lost his life. And uh, in that moment, how could I have cancer as well? It's crazy, it's three of us, you know. Um, so yeah, uh, I felt like I'd been hit by a truck, but like I deal with everything, I deal with everything with humour. So I asked him, give it to me straight, Doc. Will I lose my hair? Well, I haven't got any hair. And he said, I'm afraid so. But there you go. At that moment in time, 
when you are diagnosed with cancer, other than um, your goal in the headlights, you never ever realise the mad journey it's going to take, and how long it's going to take, and the treatment path. It's very, very difficult. But yeah, so, pretty early on, well, he said to me, why are you worried about anything? And I said, nah, not at all. I think I've got thrust or a throw infection, one clear up. That's all it is. And he said, it's a lot more serious than that. It's a large tumour on the vocal cords. And it's grown 40% under the airway. And that's why your breathing is bad. It's grown into the thyroid gland. And um, we've got a whole host of stuff to do. And from there, I went to the Macmillan Centre. There was a Macmillan nurse in there. When you leave the hospital, and you, we went back to the car park and sat in the car, me and my wife just sat there. Madness. What a mad. Your head's mad. It's just, don't know what to do, what to think, what to say. What did your wife say? Well, she was very upset and she cried, but um, when I did the appointment for the hospital, I said to her, I've got a two-week rule appointment for the hospital. I've got to go and see them. So I'll do that, then I'll go to work. And she said, no, I'll come with you. What are you coming with me for? Ain't a problem. And she said, oh, I've looked it all up. I said, well, don't look it up. There's nothing wrong with me. I've got a bit of an old voice. She thought I had cancer. I always believed, and I've always said it, and I said this to my brother Mark, surely you know if you've got cancer. Surely if you're walking around with tumour, you know something tells you what I was wrong. Because I had no idea. So, John, had at that appointment, obviously it sounds like you went away, had a bit of time to kind of digest what you'd been told. Did you have any idea of kind of what treatments you'd you'd have or was that an, another appointment that they discussed that with you? Um, straight away, yeah. So I went away and within a couple of days I had an MRI and then I had a PET scan. I think the following two or three weeks, I must have had every scan known to man, blood tests and everything. It was crazy. I mean, they acted really quick. And um, uh, met them at the Marsden, the oncology team, Raw Marsden. And uh, they said it's stage three laryngeal cancer. We think it might have just gone into the thyroid, but we still think it's stage three. So radiotherapy, chemotherapy, 13 sessions of radiotherapy with two chemo, and uh, we reckon we'll get this. I said, okay then, let's get it done and let's go on with our lives. And then um, my surgeon had a, another meeting, the first big meetings they had, and uh, I was called back into the Marsden on the Thursday evening, and, uh, and that's when they told me that um, they wanted a further scan by a consultant because uh, half of the team believed it was stage four and they would mean that the voice box etc would be removed so at that point i knew that i would be an laryngectomy in my own mind 
I knew I'd have a permanent tragedy. I just knew it was going to happen. And um, so that was around about the end of November last year. Anyway, so I had the uh, further scan. My wife was in the scan room and they showed us all the images. It was stage four and it was in the thyroid. Um, about 90% of the thyroid had cancer. Uh, the voice box. Uh, the lymph nodes weren't affected, though they did end up removing 84 of them in surgery um, because I was worried about the spread. So they removed the voice box, 92% of the thyroid gland, and the other bit they left failed now. Um, and 84 lymph nodes and left me with a permanent trachea. Initially, I refused the surgery, but because of uh, Christmas, I had three days to decide. And then my surgeon contacted me and said, you've refused the surgery. And I said, yeah, well, let's have a go. And he said, John, you won't make the end of June. So Christmas was quiet. And then I went in on the 9th of January this year and had 11 hours surgery. Followed by a couple of weeks in hospital, um, then three weeks rest. And then I had to travel to the Marsden in London for the radiotherapy because of the stoma. It had to be completely pinpoint. And that was another challenge because the stoma shrinks become infected. Uh, I was in a bit of a mess. But anyway, I'm right now. So yeah, it was a journey there. But uh, it was frightening, but it's very unknown, isn't it? John, obviously at that point in time, you had a lot going on, but what initially made you decide not to go for the surgery? Um, well, um, I can only speak for me. Um, I'd say, you know, I speak to a lot of laryngectomy patients and we all have different, but I won't put uh, words in other people's mouth. So for me, it's hard. Life's really hard. Now, I know I'm here and I'm pleased to be here. You know, my grandchildren and everything else. But talking's hard, breathing's hard, eating food, swallowing, that's hard. Sleeping's hard, I sleep upright, otherwise I'm sick. I don't sleep much. Um, the pain I still experience in my shoulders and nerve damage. I'm still on opioid medicines even now. That's hard. Um, I used to love running and cycling. And my legs have had it through effects of radio, chemo and thyroid. I can hardly walk distances. So that's hard. If I go to a party or, or a wedding or something, no one can hear me. You know, there's more people. So you sit there as a mute. So I've got a lot to be thankful for. But when I looked at it initially, I thought, do I really want to be like this the rest of my life? And I didn't. So initially I said, thank you. No, thank you. Looking back on it, John, this is something we've asked anyone who's 
you know been brave enough to share their story with us would you ever go back and have to go through it all again so with all your blog work and your social media work that you're doing now yeah of course now the only way that I could um, make head nod to how it all was that you know you sit late at night and you're alone with your mind and the only way I could make any head or tail of it was, this is my calling. I can't just have cancer, have surgery, um, and then get on with life. There must be a reason for it. And my reason was to raise awareness, help others, be there for other people. I don't want any pats on the back for it, because it helps me as much as other people. That was my therapy. That was my reasoning. So looking back, of the friends I've made, of the warriors out there, I'll definitely have it done again. It was well worth it. It doesn't matter how you're left. Life is precious. And like my wife said to me, your brother would have jumped her chance. You know, so don't waste it. Take it. So yeah, it was the right decision to have it done. John, this is also another question that we've asked people who've had cancer previously on the podcast, but do you feel that you appreciate life more now? Because, you know, it is something to stare into your own mortality and knowing, obviously, that you would still have made that same decision, knowing the quality of life that you have now. You, um, you appreciate situations. It's funny. Now, of course you appreciate life more, um, but we all take it for granted so much, like I did, you know. Um, you appreciate situations. I went to walk the dog the other morning. It's a little field, it's only near me. I don't go too far now because of my legs. And as I stood there, the sun rose. And what a sunset. What a sunrise, I mean. And uh, I get emotional at those things now. I do I? I cry. When I'm out of my wife, she says, for God's sake, shut up. I do in situations when I see the grandchildren or something happens and it makes me smile. Then you, uh, you go, you made the right choice, mate. Just situations. Little victories. I just call them little victories. So, John, you've not long finished treatment as well. How are things with the side effects that you've mentioned or the late effects? Well, for me, radiotherapy was hell on earth. But as for me, you know, um, I think that people have had a neck cancer, they're all cancers. But radiotherapy, I can only talk for me, to have radiotherapy to the head and neck, what it does to your saliva glands and mucus and swallowing and what it does to your teeth your mouth, your sores. They don't know fun. Um, so side effects were from it. So the last two weeks of radiotherapy and the following, and the first two weeks after, I slept a lot. And if I'm honest, I sleep every afternoon now. I'm exhausted, totally exhausted. So I work in the morning. I work from home, do bits and pieces, I'm a consultant. 
and I do my charity stuff and my life after Larry and me uh, Instagram stuff to help others. But come one o'clock, I'm finished. I sleep for two hours every day. And, um, and I've got the problems with my legs. I've got the Royal Marston pain team on Thursday, I think. I'm still in pain, nerve damage, and they, they move muscles about. They, they swap stuff over. They hold your head up. Everything in your throat's taken. Adam's apple, everything. So your head does a bit of that. So they prop it all up. Yeah, no, hurts, you know, and I spoke to plenty of Larry's, laryngectomies, and um, they're all suffering one way or another with nerve damage. I'm deaf in one ear, they cut that. I have no sense of smell at all. Um, that's all laryngectomies can't smell. Um, but I still see the sunrise. I had no choice. Choices were taken out of my hands. So, stop moaning, John. Smile for God's sake. John, you've obviously talked about the impact that it's had on you physically. What about emotionally and mentally? Well, in that respect, I was very lucky in one way there. I have always suffered with my mental health. And um, for 30 years, I've been on large dose antidepressants. And um, I was sectioned twice many years ago. Um, and I believe that being on an antidepressant, a large dose antidepressant, already helped me. So I'd learned coping techniques and anxiety techniques and depression techniques which I brought into play. So, no, I wasn't really. We had our moments, but no. What you have to do is what I did, or what I had to do was divert that. And by diverting now, I wrote poetry and, um, did my Instagram, contacted people around the world, you know, Cuba, India, everywhere, and um, tried to help them. And that was my therapy. So in that respect, I was very lucky. Without it, I don't know where I'd be. But to be fair, shall I say it? Yeah, I say I did ask for help once. I said I want to make you aware that this can go real bandy quick because of my mental health history. And I'm afraid I was told in no uncertain terms that the waiting list was far too long and I'd be discharged before I got to the top of it. What did you do then? Sad. That was sad for me because not of how I felt. And my own mental health was sad for others that really needed it. And I questioned it to our professor there. 
said, how can you spend hundreds of thousands of pounds treating someone? Send them out on the street when their head is shot. Not fair, but that's where we are. John, obviously you do a lot of advocacy work for patients who have gone through the same treatment that you have. Um, do you often find that kind of the side effects that you're experiencing, the mental health, the social, you know, the psychosocial issues that you've experienced, is that commonplace? And is that something that, you know, patients are supported with? Um, because I know in my own personal experience, I think that sometimes because a lot of patients that we do treat with radiotherapy, you know, cope very well with side effects and they don't necessarily have the impact on their quality of life as head and neck cancer patients do, that actually maybe, you know, people don't realise how tough it can get? Yeah. Um, people do talk to me about them in the law, you know, if they want to on there. And I, um, I've heard a thing on social media the other day, a little service I provide. Uh, tongue-in-cheek for people that have been in touch. Uh, use me and have a moment, pick up your phone. Um, and there's just a, someone there to listen. Um, in my experience is that, uh, unfortunately, the way we are nowadays is that there's not a great deal of help out there. People do struggle through, and then they don't realise um, that they do need help. Spoke to someone the other day, I won't no, mention no names, male or female. And they'd been in bed three weeks since they finished their last session. It wasn't because they was exhausted, because they were so depressed, you know. Now, I know Macmillan offers six sessions of um, counselling. Six sessions isn't enough. You just got to know someone at six sessions. And then you're out there, I think you can do more damage than good. But that's me. Yeah, people do struggle. I'm not trained, though. All I can do is listen. Yeah, I mean, I know that Macmillan offers six sessions of counselling to her cancer patients, which is great. But is it really six sessions? I mean, in six sessions, you're just starting to get to know somebody. Are you really even offering some help? in six sessions it's not enough yeah yeah and it is it's a shame isn't it john that we don't have the services and provision available so that actually identifying someone who has a history of mental health conditions can access that help and support even before they start along their cancer pathway because you know it's going to have a detrimental impact on on your mental health so yeah it definitely needs more investment and you know mcmillan do an amazing amazing work to be able to provide that service but like you said for anyone who needs specialist intervention it's just not it's not enough is it and it it's something that definitely needs investing in no and i agree and it's not the um, nurses and doctors um or macmillan's fault it just isn't there the time's not there the funding isn't there it's not their fault So, John, for anyone listening to this podcast episode, they may not even necessarily know what a laryngectomy is. Do you want to talk about what it actually is and what it entails um, from your perspective? Well, a laryngectomy is a uh, 
major surgery. Um, that was first performed around about the time of the Crimean War. Uh, Florence Nightingale's days, uh, about 1866. Um, in November, actually, so it's coming up. Um, and it's a complete removal of the uh, the voice box. You can have a partial laryngectomy or a total laryngectomy. Mine was total. So it's a complete removal of the voice box. And uh, the uh, trachea that comes from the lung will connect to the voice box inside and allow you to breathe. So they cut it here. They pull the breathing tube through the front. This is a button covering it. And uh, remove everything in here to take away the cancer. Yeah, so it's very invasive surgery. And why the hell they have a little dig about and move some other stuff, lymph nodes and things. Um, and that leaves you being able to breathe through here, no longer through the mouth or the nose. Um, at all, so you can't sniff or blow your nose or do anything. The sole purpose of the mouth is to eat and uh, and to make and form words. Inside here, they have a little valve that um, I divert air through, goes through the valve and out of the mouth, and that's how I talk. When I press the button, what that's doing is stopping the air. And then I stop the air and push the air through the valve and out of the mouth. And that's how it works. But everything you did through here, whether you had a cold, a cough, flame mucus, whatever, now has one escape route there. So it makes things very difficult, breathing and talking and things like that. That's what a laryngectomy is. Is everyone able to manipulate their voice like you can now? It's so hit and miss. Uh, once again, I'm very lucky. And um, I'm 57, so I'm a bit younger. The guys and ladies and gentlemen, it's generally older that you have it. Though I do know people in their 20s that have it. Um, that I've met on this journey. And... Um, is to do with lung strength. Some people, <clears throat> some people use an electrolarynx. Which is one of these. So sometimes when I can't talk, I'll use an electrolarynx that some people use. And I will speak by placing it here and causing a vibration. Um, some people can't do it. They just can't get the hang of it. And some people only talk with a very small whisper. Some people can't talk at all. Some people eat fine. Some people might swallow is about 10%. Some people live with a permanent bed tube and never swallow again. It just depends how we are. But yeah, I'm very lucky. I can talk. I have to say, John, when we were conversing on Instagram um, and I was viewing your videos, I was like, this is amazing to have a laryngectomy 
patient be able to come on to the podcast because it just doesn't happen. And, you know, communication is so vital to be able to share messages and kind of disseminate information um, that, you know, the fact that you do still have a voice is so powerful um, to kind of, get, I would imagine, give people hope that, you know, it is something that can occur, although it albeit rarely. Yeah, no, thank you, but um, and I say this a lot, and uh, a lot of it takes practice, and don't get this on, and I do talk to guys and say, you know, do this or try this or do that. You know, I'm not trained or anything else, and, you know, you got to take your out after the speech and language therapy teams, you know. I mean, I was at St George's Hospital in Tooting, and my team was amazing, my surgeon, and Mr Tagar. He took away my cancer and saved my life. For my speech and language therapy team, they gave me my personality back. Because when you have this surgery, for at least three weeks you can't speak. And you write on a board. People don't talk to you. People don't listen to you. They talk over you. It's horrible. I understand what a disability is now. And um, we should all be a little bit mindful of everyone with a disabled disability, you know. But, um, yeah, as I said earlier, when you go to a party or a function, you know, just wave or sit there and thumbs up. You can be soul-destroying. Six hours, not saying anything, but I'm lucky than most. I'm lucky than most. But um, you're right, without your voice, and I've experienced it because sometimes the valve will leak and things like that. And so you don't speak for a while. It's very isolated. Very isolated. Because for some reason, when you have no voice, people think you're deaf and stupid. And they love to talk to my wife. You know, and I speak to me. And I'm deaf. Just can't talk today. See, I'm lucky. Can I ask, John, you said you have 11 grandchildren. How have they found kind of watching you go through this process and now? Well, that is a great question because um, when I was in hospital, I laid there and I was worrying. I was worried. That was my biggest worry. I thought I was going to be scared. You know, the babies and that. Granddad's going to come home talking like a Dalek. And it worried me. And my wife, Nikki, kept saying, kids are resilient, don't worry. Well, they've all been absolutely amazing. Uh, little one Bodie's um, just died nursery, and uh, he put a bowl top on his neck so as he can walk around, and he does the voice. And um, we had to put a uh, tube on his bunny rabbit, a Mary Band, and that's so how he could be the same as Granddad. And uh, one of our granddaughter, Gally, she loves to press it to tell me that I can tell her I love her. So I was, um, I was worried, really worried. I shouldn't have been. They don't, you know, and then it was a few weeks later. They don't even tell know he's now. It was all good. I was worried. They weren't. No, thank you for sharing that, John. I thought I was going to cry then. <laughs> 
but yeah, you're absolutely right. I think children are definitely, definitely resilient, but it is hard. Um, John, what about all the support that you got from healthcare professionals? So you kind of talked about speech and language therapists, which is amazing because I don't, again, sometimes they're that unknown profession that people don't talk enough about. So it's brilliant that you've kind of mentioned them and the massive impact that they've had. But what about the other healthcare professionals? Do you think that they were able to prepare you for what life was going to be like? Do you think that's something that can happen from a healthcare professional? Or do you think it should be from patients who've maybe gone through the treatment and having a laryngectomy that should be helping prepare patients? Yeah. So um, many hospitals, and George's including, included, they have asked me, um, and there are other laryngectomy patients. We meet other prospective patients and we take them through it and they ask us questions. Um, was I told the whole impact of the operation? No. Was it the right thing to do to not tell me? Probably yes. I was told as much as I needed to be told and um, I was fully aware what was going to go on. Though it was never gone into in depth. I read every um, paper I could on it. We watched videos of the actual surgery, me and my wife, something I wanted to do. Um, the staff around it. So when you have surgery, the staff leading up to it, so the guy that did my surgery was the one that diagnosed me, Mr. Tagar. So I knew him. We're like friends now, we always have a hug. Um, when I came round from surgery, I was in ICU for three days because I woke up with COVID. And um, in ICU, I wasn't confident of them. It's such a specialist thing. I can't just go to a hospital. They won't know what to do with me. We have to go to a specialist DNT hospital and they've told us that. But when I came out of the ICU and went onto the ward, Florence Nightingale, which was an ENT ward, amazing. The Macmillan nurses there, Anna and the team, and Jess, speech and language. Even the nurse in charge, Emma, she sat with me all through the night when I was worried. You know, these people, they're amazing. You know, the people that give you your food. When I first started eating, she went all the way to another ward to get me the yoghurt I wanted. So that I could be a bit more happier with something to eat. Amazing, amazing, amazing people. And they're like that all over the country. We surely are blessed from um, the person that wipes your table down to the person that performs the surgery. Forever in their debt. Forever. John, you do a lot of work, don't you, with Swallow Charity. Um, can you just talk us a little bit about the impact that that charity's had on your life? Well, there's uh, three charities I work with. Uh, the Throat Cancer Foundation and Gordon now. Uh, he was there from day one. I contacted him. Um, I've become an ambassador there. And um, he's, we WhatsApp each other still now. And... He would WhatsApp me at one or two in the morning. And then um, 
then there's uh, Gemma and Brenda Oracle, Oracle Cancer Trust. I do bits for them. Um, doing some readings. Doing some readings for them at Christmas in London and stuff like that. And Swallows uh, with Chris, Curtis and Sharon. And on uh, the conference in November, I've been invited to speak on the stage. I'm learning so much from them. And um, the support that they give me and enable me to support others is invaluable. So I've got laryngeal cancer, or had laryngeal cancer. But I need to know more about other cancers. I don't want to be there just to help the uh, laryngectomy people or advise or be a pain in the neck to them. I'd like to be a pain in the neck to everybody with cancer. And by uh, doing work with Swallows and the, the Oracle and that, I can learn more. So they're invaluable to me, my mental health. And, um, and I know it's cool me and everyone says it, but this allows me to give something back. I'm not a medical man or a clever man or anything. But I have a heart and I can be there for someone. And, um, and I have been at people messaging in the middle of the night and I'm always on the end of the phone. Just give something back. So yeah, I love my work with the Jerry's. And um, we started life after Larry as a wall group for laryngectomy patients. Um, just to uh, give them the voice that uh, perhaps they haven't got. That voice can be used through me. Uh, we're stronger together. Alone, you're alone. But we're all stronger together. And I believe that. Thank you, John. And that's really nice to hear, I think, for anyone listening. And I'm sure if anyone is listening and needs your help, you can be a pain in their neck whenever you need them to be. Um, John, we are coming towards the end of the episode. You've given lots of little nuggets throughout this episode, but is there anything you have for our listeners to take away from this episode, some top tips? What I will say is um, having cancer is hard. It's hard on everyone around you. And uh, like me, you'll probably feel guilty that by you having cancer, you upset a lot of people. But, like I just said, together you're stronger. And um, cancer can be won. And it can be overcome. Like radiotherapy and chemotherapy. Radiotherapy was the single hardest thing I've ever done in my life. But it can be done. And you can come out the other side. In January this year, I was diagnosed with stage four laryngeal cancer and given maybe six months to live. I am now no evidence of disease. And I have a life back. A different life, but a life. Thank you, John. It's a really nice way to end the episode. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for coming on. It's been very insightful. And Joe and I were texting each other and saying, it's just amazing the way you're able to articulate with your voice. Because as Joe said, it's very rare and it's just amazing. And as you said, it shows that it can be done. 
No, no, thank you for the opportunity to um, to speak and to share my story. Um, awareness is key. If we all sit still and don't say anything, no one knows. So I really appreciate you giving me a time and platform. I really do. Thank you. And what you guys do, and I watch loads of these here. Amazing. Brilliant. Really good. Thank you. Thank you everyone for listening to Rad Chat. So your hosts today have been Naman Chokhamson and Joe McNamara. If you're utilising the podcast for CPD purposes, please consider the reflective questions we've posted, along with the links to resources and literature that we've discussed. To receive a credited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked to the podcast. So our next guest to feature will be Chris Rigby, who will be discussing their experience of bowel cancer and returning to work within the NHS. Thank you for listening and take care.